Isaiah 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which has they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of God endures forever. Well, most people do not believe the gospel. And that is true in our day, but it was also true in Isaiah's day. Those words, who has believed our report, is more than a rhetorical question. It's a bitter heart cry from the apostle or the prophet. He's been preaching and it seems no one is listening. I suppose that shouldn't have surprised Isaiah. Uh, back in chapter 6, you remember, God called him to a heart-hardening ministry. But I, I kind of get the feeling that it's beginning to wear on the prophet. Who has believed our report? I wonder this morning, do you all believe the gospel? Are you trusting in Christ? Do you know him as your saviour? Many people, most people in our day, do not. And there are many reasons, of course, to justify their scepticism, right? Um, for some, it's intellectual doubt that drives their scepticism. They're like Bertrand Russell, the famous atheist, who was once asked, if you get to heaven, he's given the EE question, you get to heaven and God asks you, well, why didn't you believe in me? Remember Russell's famous three-word answer to justify his unbelief. Not enough evidence. There you have it. Not enough evidence, he says. For others, their doubt, their skepticism rests on prideful um, self-sufficiency. They think God is a crutch for weak people. I'm not a weak person, they think. I don't need God. I can get along very well by myself. That was the attitude of um, Pierre-Simon Laplace, the famous French um, mathematician, physicist, engineer. His Laplace equation is still used today. He was the first um, astrophysicist who posited the existence of black holes in the first half of the 18th century. Amazing. Uh, genius. And when he was explaining some of his uh, theories to Napoleon, Napoleon asked him, uh, where is God in all your equations? And you remember Laplace's famous answer, sir, I have no need of, of that hypothesis. God, I have no need of that hypothesis. 
As far as Laplace was concerned, he had it all figured out and he didn't need God. Intellectual doubt and prideful self-sufficiency. And many people in our day and age kind of lump those two things together and justify why they don't believe the Christian message. Um, they kind of look back and say, you know, in the, in, the, in the past, you know, when people were knuckle-draggers, their knuckles bleeding because they dragged them along the ground behind them when they walked, they, didn't, they, they had the, all these things they didn't understand. Where does the rain come from? And they thought, oh, God must send the rain. Or the lightning, where does the lightning and the thunder come from? God must send the lightning. There are so many gaps in their knowledge, they say. And so, but now we understand the water cycle of evaporation and condensation, and we understand that when hot, wet, hot, um, a hot front collides with a cold front and the air rises and so forth and so on, it produces a, an electrically charged atmosphere, and thus you get thunder. It's not the thunder gods or the lightning gods, it's just science. And they say there are no gaps left in our knowledge, and so we have no need for God. But really, is that the case? I mean, think about it for a second. You and I, we live on a space rock hurtling through the universe, right? It's an amazing thought. A universe of unimaginable size and grandeur and glory. In his record-breaking bestseller, A Brief History of Time, the British physicist Stephen Hawking, who is the Lucasian professor of mathematics at Cambridge, and that was once held by Isaac Newton, he described the Earth and our universe like this. We live, he says, on a medium-sized planet orbiting around an average star in the outer suburbs of an ordinary spiral galaxy, which is itself only one of about a million million galaxies in the observable universe. So there you have it. We live on in, a, in an average-sized galaxy, right? And it sounds so simple just to trot it off the tongue, right? But think about it for a second. We live in the Milky Way which is a size of space that is so big, when you get a ruler to measure the Milky Way, you have to use a ruler, and the little marks on the ruler are not millimeter, not millimeters, they're not um, kilometers, they're not miles, they are light years, right? And, and what a light year is, boys and girls, is how far does light travel in a year, right? Well, that's even too big to say. So let's make it smaller. How far does light travel in a second? You turn the light on and you say it immediately. But how fast does it travel? Light travels at 186,000 miles a second. A second. That's moving, right? To travel across just our galaxy, which is one of, one of a million, million galaxies, traveling at 186,000 miles a second, it would take you only a hundred thousand years to travel across our galaxy it is absolutely massive now where did our galaxy come from well people say science has got that sort of night 13.7 billion years ago all of the matter in the universe was condensed into an inconceivably large small lump and then at 9 37 on tuesday morning for no reason whatsoever it exploded and it made quite a mess right and this, they tell you, is the source of absolutely everything, from Apple computers, the internal combustion engine, modern medicine, and Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, all come from this explosion. That is just, that boggles the mind. The people are so credulous to believe the glory and the majesty of the cosmos came from an explosion, that somehow there was nothing, and nothing happened to nothing for a very long time. And then for no reason whatsoever, nothing exploded, 
and produced everything. And then everything magically organized itself into self-replicating bits of information we call DNA. And then after that came the dinosaurs. Makes perfect sense. <laughs> um, maybe it's just me, right? But science has not explained away the gaps. If anything, it's made bigger gaps. How do we go from nothing to something? How do we go from no life to life? Like life, the amazing cells that lie at the exist of our being, that we are biochemical machines. Where did that come from? How did that arise? Science is literally no answer. The playwright George Bernard Shaw summed up the problem beautifully. You think about it. If that's true, if, if we're just the if, if we if life began as a fluke and ends up as fertilizer, how can it be anything but a farce in between? Like, what are human beings? Are we just biochemical machines? Are, are we just a soup of chemicals wrapped up in a sack of skin? Is there any dignity to human beings if we're just chemicals whizzing around in the brain? George Bernard Shaw said, the Darwinian process may be described as a chapter of accidents. And such, it seems simple. Because you do not at first realize all that it involves. But when its whole significance dawns on you, your heart sinks into a heap of sand within you. There's a hideous fatalism about it, a ghastly and damnable reduction of beauty and intelligence, of strength and purpose, of honour and aspiration, to such casually picturesque changes as an avalanche may make in a landscape or a railway accident in a human figure. If life is just an accident, what meaning or significance can there be for your life and your pain and your hopes and your aspirations? Science answers one question, where did the world come from? An accident. But it creates a thousand other questions. Is there meaning? Is there dignity to my life? Do I really make choices? If there's no ghost driving the machine of Neil Stewart, if I'm just chemical reactions, um, is, does my life mean anything? Are my choices worth anything? My love for my wife, my children, their love for me. Is, is there anything more significant than just chemicals? The, the former philosophers would say the, the unconsidered life is not worth living. If the atheists are right, the reverse is true. The considered life is not worth living. Because if life came from nothing and heads to nothing, then it must mean nothing in between. And you wouldn't want to think about that very long because it would be a, a drastically and terribly depressing concept. The real question that I think the atheist must ask, and you must answer this morning if you don't believe in Jesus here, maybe as a visitor to this church, or maybe a child of this church yet to put your faith in Jesus, is why would anyone want to believe that nightmare? Why would anyone want to believe that there's no God behind the universe? And that, I think, is the third and most common reason why people refuse to believe in God. They regard him as a threat. The reason we don't need the hypothesis of God is because we don't want the hypothesis of God because God is an inconvenient person who, 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 who no longer allows us to live in the, in the illusion that we, are, that we are not guests in somebody else's universe. And that's the, that Isaiah's assessment of his own audience. Follow his argument with me. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For 
He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that he should we desire him. Notice verse 2 begins with four. Four, he grew up before him like a young plant. Now, what Isaiah is doing here is in that four, he is explaining the unbelief of, of verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Why are these people not believing? And Isaiah says, for he grew up before him like a young plant. Now, who's the him there? That's an important question. And there's a beautiful ambiguity in Isaiah's logic. And scholars point this out. From one perspective, the him in verse 2 could be God himself. That as the Messiah grows up as a root out of dry ground before God, his son coming in our flesh from the, from the stump of Jesse is a beautiful, fresh blossom of life out of a dead stump. Grass growing in the middle of a dead desert. A fresh start, a fresh evidence of new life. That's one way to read verse 2. But verse 2 could also be, and I think perhaps even better described, as the assessment of an unbelieving Jew. Why didn't you believe in Jesus? For he grew up before me like a young plant. And the word young plant there in the Hebrew is the Hebrew word yonech, which which is used as a sucker. If you're a horticulture, if you're a gardener here, you know when you're growing roses, you'll you'll have a... a, um, a shoot will grow out from the side of the of the main blossoming branch, or, uh, and and if, if you don't cut that sucker off, it'll threaten the health of the bloom. It's a threat to the flower. You've got to cut the suckers off that the flower might properly and truly um, blossom. And that's how Christ. That's how the Jews regarded Jesus. He was a sucker, a threat to the bloom they wanted to cultivate. And you see that beautifully illustrated in John's Gospel. If you remember John's Gospel, you have in the opening um, half of the book, it's the book of signs. And you've got these seven signs that point to Christ. And you have the seven I am statements of Christ. And he's telling you a picture of who Christ is. right? And in the beginning of the book, Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he says, and this is a damning indictment of the Pharisees. People often think the Pharisees didn't understand who Christ was. Yes, they did. Nicodemus said, teacher, we know. Not I know, we know. You are a teacher come from God. For no one can do the things that you are doing unless God is with him. The Pharisees knew who Christ was, right? So the book of signs, you get the seven I am statements and the seven signs. The seventh sign is the resurrection of Lazarus. Now, there's so much we could say about this. and I need to, we need to be disciplined. But Lazarus is dead, and Christ waits. So the the um, the messenger comes to, to to Christ and tells him about Lazarus, his friend, has is very sick, and Christ sends the man back, um, saying, "Don't worry, this sickness will not end in death, but for the glory of God." The man arrives back in Bethany with that message: "Don't worry, Lazarus is not going to die. This sickness will not end in death." And the problem is. If you do the chronology, when the man arrives back, Lazarus is already dead. And Mary and Martha are going, what gives? He just gave us a word of life and our, and our brother's dead. Which is why John, immediately after Christ gives that message, he says, now, Mary, now Jesus loved Mary and he loved Martha and he loved Lazarus. He didn't just say he loved that family. 
Because Christ just, just, just doesn't just love families. He loves Mary, and he loves Martha, and he loves Lazarus. He's not being callous. He loved these people in all of their individuality. Though his word didn't make sense. A word of life in the midst of death. And whenever um, the messenger comes back, he comes back without Jesus. No Jesus. No Jesus for two more days. Christ delayed two days. Why didn't he come back with the messenger? He seems so heartless. And he, and he says to his disciples, I was glad that I was not there. If I had been there, I would have had to have raised Lazarus. I couldn't just sat there and done nothing as our friend died. So he, he stays away and he comes in. And when he gets to town, Mary and Martha are saying, Lord, if you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. And that's, there's, there's an edge to their voice. They're bitter. Why weren't you here? Why didn't you come? You healed the, the, the centurion servant from afar. Why didn't you heal your friend from afar? What, what gives, right? And... Jesus said this sickness will not end in death but for the glory of God, right? And the point is, you see, there was a debate among the Jews in Christ's day about resurrection. The Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the Pharisees, well, both the Pharisees and the Sadducees believed that for the first three days after death, if a holy man came along, like Elijah or Elisha, he could raise you from the dead. Once you got to the fourth day, though, and you began to stink. At that point, the spirit left, went to the afterworld, paradise, Abraham's bosom. And at that point, the Pharisees believed that no holy man, only God himself could raise the dead. And the Sadducees believed there was no resurrection. They believed not even God himself could raise the dead on the fourth day. And so Christ walks into town on the fourth day. He looks at the tomb. And says, Lazarus, come out. And now the Pharisees have got a real problem. At the beginning of the gospel, they said, no man could do the things that you do unless God is with him. Now they're left with the problem, no man could do the things that you do even if God is with him. Who is Jesus? Right? And so some of the Jews see this and they go and they tell that they, they go to the Pharisees. And you remember how the Pharisees respond? Many of the Jews, therefore, were told in John eleven forty five, 45, uh, who had come with Mary and had seen what Christ did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, well, we know that can't have happened because men can't do that kind of thing. No. That's not what the Pharisees said. What are we to do for this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. He'll come and take away our place. Our place, our leadership, our influence, life as we want to live it. And we just can't have Jesus running, running around doing that kind of thing we must stop him. He must die if we are to live life our way. And that, that is the reason these unbelieving Jews um, despise Jesus in Christ's day, but also in um, Isaiah's day. They grew, he grew up before him like a sucker, a threat, 
like a root out of dry ground, a hopeless little blade of grass growing in the middle of the wilderness. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows. Messiah? Who ever heard of a crucified Messiah? Seriously, a dead Messiah saving me? Madness. Madness. He doesn't look like a king. He didn't live like a king. And he certainly didn't die like a king. He was naked on the cross with his own excrement dripping down his legs and a pile on the ground, with his own blood and urine all there. And you want to tell me that's God the Son and dying in my place for my sins. Give me a break. That was the Jews' attitude. He was a man of sorrows, misery guts. And it's insulting that you would come to me and tell me that I must put my faith in him as my saviour. Oh no. And he wants me to repent and turn my life around? Absolutely not. That's the real reason that drives unbelief. We regard Christ and God as a threat to the life that we want to live. It's like Aldous Huxley, who famously once said, I have reasons for not wanting the world to have meaning. And those reasons are mostly sexual and political. I want to have sex when I want it and with whom I want it and the way I want to have it. And I want to order my life in the polis, my political life, to my own ends. I don't want to live as a guest in somebody else's universe. No, mine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. That is the sinner's, that's my desire by nature. And it's your desire by nature. And it's why Christ was crucified. I want to ask you, and I know the vast majority of you who believe in the gospel, I trust, but do all of you believe in the gospel? Do you believe in Jesus? Are you trusting him? Are you leaning upon him? Have you cast your soul upon him? Are there some of you here, maybe a covenant child, and, 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 and already you've begun to harden your heart to the gospel of Jesus? And you're saying to yourself, my dad's stupid. Mum's even stupider. I'm not following that Christ. It's silly. And you're listening maybe to things you hear in school or elsewhere about evolution and you think, oh, that sounds wonderful. Really, does it? Does it really sound wonderful? Don't be like Uncle Andrew. Remember in The Magician's Nephew? Whenever he goes back to that moment in creation and he hears Aslan sing the world into existence. And you remember how C.S. Lewis in his... Genius describes Uncle Andrew. When the great moment came and the beast spoke, he missed the whole point for a rather interesting reason. When the lion had first begun singing long ago, when it was still quite dark, he had realised that the noise was a song. And he disliked the song very much. It made him think and feel things he did not want to think and feel. That's the sinner. They hear the gospel. It's appointed once for men to die. This world is not meaningless. It didn't come from nothing and is not headed to nothing. It came from not something, but from someone. That there's a creator behind the universe and we are guests in his universe and life must be lived his way because all of life came from him. All of life has to be about him. Everything. Our homes, our hearts, our marriages, our, our children, our children, 
our past, our present, our future, all get their meaning as we connect them to this great creator, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And we are accountable. There's coming a day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, they'll receive indignation and wrath and tribulation and anguish. And maybe you're here this morning and you're hearing that and you're thinking, oh, no, no, I don't want that to be true. I don't want that to be true. You're like, you're like um, Uncle Andrew hearing the song and it makes you think and feel things you don't want to think and feel. Then listen on as, as Uncle Andrew continues. Then when the sun rose and he saw that the singer was a lion, only a lion, he said to himself, he tried his hardest to make himself believe that it wasn't singing. It had never been singing only roaring, as any lion might do in the zoo or in our own world. Of course, it it can't really have been singing, he thought. I must have imagined it. I've been letting my nerves get out of order. Who ever heard of a lion singing? And the longer and more beautifully the lion sang, the harder Uncle Andrew tried to make himself believe that he could hear nothing but roaring. Now, the trouble... This is genius, now by Lewis. Now, the trouble about trying to make yourself stupider than you really are (laughs) is that you very often succeed. And Uncle Andrew did. He soon did hear nothing but roaring in Aslan's song. Soon he couldn't have heard anything else that he wanted to. But when at last the lion spoke and said, Narnia, awake, he didn't hear any words. He heard only a snarl. And when the beast spoke in answer, he heard only barkings, growlings, bayings, and howling. You maybe remember how Lewis explained this phenomenon so profoundly. For what you see and hear depends a good deal on where you are standing. It also depends on what kind of a person you are. Could that be you this morning? Do, do, Do you regard Jesus as a threat to your autonomy? And maybe you come to church, as, as many people do, and they think, I'll give God a little bit of religion, and he'll let me live my life my way, and I can have my pleasure. I'll give him an hour a week or two hours a week, and a little bit here and there, but really, life is mine. I've not relinquished the lordship of my life to Christ. I'm still singing the sinner's prayer with Frank Sinatra. I did it, and I do it my way, not Christ's way. But I'll give God a little bit of religion, but I'm not going to relinquish the whole of my life to the Lord Christ. And you hear a message of the Lordship of Christ calling you to repent, and it sounds very threatening to you. What kind of a person regards the voice of their creator as a threat? Can we admit it's someone who's gone very far astray, which is exactly what Isaiah says. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned everyone his own way. It's a genius, you know. Um, He describes the totality and the individuality of our depravity perfectly. Totality, we all like sheep. We've all gone astray. We all wander away from God every day. I do it, you do it. We all go astray. We have turned each one to his own way. We all have our own ways of going astray from God. 
I send my way, you send your way. But we all go astray. We all wander from our creation. Sheep, we think of sheep as cuddly animals. They're not. They're stupid animals. One of my friends back in Northern Ireland, a police officer, retired police officer, senior police officer, retired, and he spends his life, he thought it would be fun being a shepherd, so he bought a bunch of sheep. Jim tried the same thing. It's a disaster, Jim Van Erden. It's a disaster. Sheep, he said to me, are the, are the stupidest animals in God's green earth. They're the only animals who will forsake a meadow for a wilderness just because they can. <laughs> it's not just that the grass looks greener beyond the gate that's open. And the sheep doesn't realize it's weeds beyond the gate. No, the grass looks greener to the sheep even when there's no grass beyond the gate but only a wilderness and a desert. Well, the sheep are stupid animals. Jim Vernerden was showing me this week recently that there was a huge, whenever the Hurricane Ian came in, we had the aftermath come through. He opened up the barn, put heat in the barn, lights on in the barn, horses all come into the barn, the cows all come into the barn. The, ga- the, the, the sheep are at the furthest end of the pasture away from the barn near the big trees that are swaying and about to fall on them and crush them. Stupid, stupid, stupid animals. And that's you and me. We're wayward, wandering people. Al, Mar- um, um, Al Marvin, no, Marvin, no, Marvin, the, uh, I was born under a wandering star, he sang in, in the in Painted Wagon. No, I was born with a wandering heart, Isaiah says. And you and I all are. We, we go astray. And we all have our own individual tools by which we go astray. Some of us go astray um, in, with, with money and, and, and thinking that we can buy life for ourselves. That's what spenders think. They think that they buy life by spending and shopping. And then they're savers. They think they're saving life by saving money, not spending it. What can be the pleasures of this world? Alcohol, food, drink, putting together a beautiful house. Are, are, are wearing beautiful clothes and looking, you know, perfectly made up as a lady, well dressed as a man, dapper. Or maybe the pleasures of sex, pornography, or movies, binge watching Netflix, or our children having the perfect family, raising children that are picture postcard, and we think this is life. Those are all pieces of life. But we get life wrong on a colossal level if we don't see the great one ring that rules them all, that surrounds life with meaning and authority. Jesus Christ alone. It's not just, even sometimes, you know, you know, the, you know, the, you know the, sometimes mankind's favorite place to hide from God is in church. We pretend to be seeking God. We can be all about religion and, and the Bible and the inspiration of the Bible and the Westminster Confession of Faith and Psalms and hymns. Just like the Pharisees were. And we think, this is what it's at. I, I can, if I can just be orthodox enough, religious enough, I can, I, I can convince myself that I don't really need Jesus. I can, I can, I, I can avoid the cross and the, humility of, the humiliation of coming as a sinner before God and saying, Lord, I deserve hell and I need your grace. And my only hope is Christ. And all across this world, in the false religions, people are doing that. Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, Roman Catholicism, liberal Protestantism. 
but also in Orthodox Christianity. People come and they think, if I can just do Christianity enough, I can, I can earn my way back to God. Because all of the religion in the world falls into one of two groups. Either do or done. What you must do is what most religions start with. You do this and God will forgive you your sins and let you into heaven. But Christianity doesn't begin with a do. It begins with a done. What Christ has done. And the question I ask you this morning, I ask myself, are you walking with Jesus? Have you, have you lost a sense, a thrill, of what it is to know this great Savior who loved you and gave himself up for you? Can you say with Robert E. Lee, I am nothing but a poor sinner trusting my Savior, trusting Jesus? And the Jews, they look at Jesus. You know, he... Who ever heard of a crucified saviour? He doesn't live like a king. He doesn't look like a king. He doesn't die like a king. He's a man of sorrows. But what the Jews forgot, though, was why was he so sorrowful? And Isaiah tells you as he moves on and enters what scholars call the he-we section of Isaiah. Surely he has borne our griefs, and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. And he was smitten by God. But why was he smitten by God? He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, turned each one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Or as the old King James says, the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. And that word to fall upon is an aggressive word. It's, it's like two enemies falling upon one another in mortal conflict. God made war with Jesus. He took our iniquity, put it on Christ. He made war with Jesus that he might make peace with you this morning. That's the gospel. As he becomes flesh and he becomes sin. He didn't just carry it, he became it. And he becomes cursed in our room and in our stead. And God's word for you this morning as, as you, maybe you're here and you're a skeptic about Christianity. Or maybe you're here, as I know many of you are, and you've trusted Jesus. And yet so often in, in life, we can lose the sweetness of Jesus, who he is and what he did. So I want to give you three very quick take-home points as you look at Isaiah 52, 13 and following. God says, I want you to see Jesus this morning. See him at the table. His body broken, his blood shed, right? Take and eat, as the says, how, or Derek Kidner, how simple the act, how hard the undoing. Eve, she took and she ate the tree. How simple the act, take and eat, how simple the act, how hard the undoing. 
God will taste poverty and death before taking deed ever again become verbs of salvation. Behold, God says, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. God is describing here where Christ will go after he suffers. That's where you've got to begin. He begins in the glory after the cross. Because if you don't start with Christ up there, you'll always underestimate what happened to Christ down here. You'll think of him just as an ordinary teacher or a, a wise man or a, a wandering mystic who died a tragic death. No, Paul, Isaiah says, you begin with Christ after he suffers in the glory. My servant shall be high and lifted up and be exalted. Those three words, high, lifted up and exalted, it's a, it's, it's a threefold exaltation when the in the in the bible when the jews want to give something their highest um emphasis it's threefold holy 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 and here high lifted up and exalted those words are only ever used elsewhere of god himself isaiah 6 i saw a throne high and lifted up and around the throne, the, the, the seraphim hiding their eyes, unable to bear the glory of the God they saw there. Later in Isaiah, God says, My, I, I am high and lifted up, inhabiting eternity. And God says about this servant, he's high, he's lifted up, he's exalted. He's at the highest pinnacle of existence, beyond the creation, in a place only God himself could possibly occupy. Behold, my servant shall be high and lifted up. And if you don't begin with Christ in the glory, you'll always underestimate Christ on the cross. Behold, where he went after he suffered. Then, Isaiah says, come down now and look at him on the cross. I want you to see Christ as he suffered. As many were astonished at you, and the word astonished is a word in Hebrew, is very strong, it means the horror you feel when you see someone in tremendous suffering under the judgment of God. As many were astonished at you, Israel, when you were being carted off naked by the Babylonians into exile. As many were astonished at you, as you went into exile under the judgment of God. That's the idea. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Oh, Isaiah says, see him in the glory, and you see a place that only God could occupy. He looks just like God in the glory. But see him on the cross, and Isaiah says, you see someone who barely even looked human. There's a story from Vietnam whenever the Special Forces Green Berets went to a town that had just been napalmed, and on the way into the town, they found three life forms quivering on the road burned beyond recognition by the napalm. And they weren't even sure whether or not they were human. That's what Isaiah is saying here. On the cross, he barely even looked human. Literally, he says, his appearance was so marred beyond that of the human, is what the Hebrew says. So he goes from the top of heaven to the pit of hell. And Isaiah is saying to you, why did God do that to his son? Because when infinite wisdom thinks, how can I save you? 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 The only answer, the infinite, boundless mind of God can come up with is that my son must take 
your flesh and your nature and die in your place for your sins. And as I says, compare the, where he goes after he suffered to how he appeared as he suffered. And then what he will achieve through his sufferings. Verse 15, so shall he sprinkle many nations. He'll sprinkle dirty people clean. That's a cultic term. That when the priest gets the gets the, 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 the hyssop branch, dips it in the blood and sprinkles people. He'll sprinkle the, the, the dirty ones, the untouchable, the leper. He'll make you clean. Are you, are you dirty this morning? You look so clean. But are you dirty? Is your soul dirty? Maybe you've drawn back from God and your soul has become stained and polluted like a wedding dress dragged through the sewer and you think how how I look outwardly how I am inwardly couldn't be more different I feel like a leper and if people knew who I was they wouldn't want to touch me because there's a logic isn't there you touch a leper and you become a leper I'm telling you now Jesus is here in this place and you come to him and say, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus, remember what he did? He touched the leper on his head while he was still a leper. He cleansed him with his word after he touched him with his hand. And the gospel is in that touch as he touches the leper to become the leper. Christ says, come to me. It's not that you clean yourself up by doing Christianity and then... God receives you. No, you come as dirty lepers to Jesus. And he says, let me get my hand, let me touch you. And he touches you. And he absorbs the guilt and the stain and the shame onto himself. And he cleanses you. He will sprinkle dirty people clean. And he will shut great men up. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see. And that which they have not heard they understand kings in Isaiah's day just like kings in our day they never shut up they were men of the last word like King James the sixth whenever Robert the Bruce was preaching and King James was talking he always talked during sermons didn't listen at all and, and, and Robert the Bruce feared the face of no man and the king's talking during the sermon and, and Robert Bruce stopped looked at him king kept on talking so later on the sermon Bruce again stops looked at him and says, sir, when the lion roars, the kings of uh, the, the beasts of the field tremble. When King Jesus speaks, the petty princes of the earth will be silent before him. Everyone looked at the king. In those days, you could be, the king could kill you for a good reason, a bad reason, and no reason. And the king, everyone looked at the king, and the king shut his mouth, put his head down. And Bruce kept preaching. And when Christ is preached, he'll sprinkle dirty people clean. And the, the great men of the world will stop listening, will stop talking, and they'll start listening. That ever happened to you? Have you ever come to a place where you say, Lord, I, I can't speak anymore. I have nothing worth saying. I've, I have no wisdom of my own. I, I'm going to come and listen to Jesus and let him teach me. Straighten out my thinking, oh God, my feelings, my emotions, the choices I make. 
I just make one bad choice after another and I need Jesus to come and teach me and I'm going to shut up and start listening. I read recently a definition of a bore. He who speaks, when you really, really wish he would stop talking. It also is a definition of a teenager too, actually. <laughs> they who speak, even when you wish they would be quiet and listen. Um, but we're all by nature, aren't we, spiritual teenagers. We, we need to learn to, to shut up and sit at the feet of Jesus like Martha and say, speak, Lord, for thy servant is listening. And you'll only ever do that when you see him in his true glory, where he went after his suffering and where he went as he suffered, what he became and what he achieves through his suffering, a way for dirty people like me to be clean. Not just clean in God's eyes, but as clean as Jesus is clean. The same logic that took Christ to hell upon the cross, giving him all of my sin, takes all of his righteousness and gives it to me. It's the, it's the logic of the credit card. I share my credit card with my wife and all of her debts become mine. And all of my credits become hers. As the bank accounts merge, and so with Jesus on the cross. That's how it works. That's the essence of Christianity. It's not a life to live in the first place. It's not a, a, a doctrine to admire. It's not an ethic to follow. I asked a man once, when he was coming for baptism in my first church, what is it that attracts you to Christianity? He goes, oh, he says, the glorious ethic, he said. So highbrow. No, it's not an ethic. It's not a life. It's not a doctrine or a system of doctrine. It's a, it's a saviour who loves you. Died in your place for your sins. Came to where you are in the pit of hell and rescued you. That he, he might bring you where he is. To the pinnacle of heaven and share his glory with you. His place in the Father's house with you. And his throne with you. It's a saviour. Have you lost the sweetness of Jesus? I do all the time. I lose my joy. I lose my bitterness. I lose my, I lose my, I, I lose, I lose my joy. I lose my gladness of heart. And I become just a little bit better when I take my eyes off Jesus. And Isaiah 53 calls you and me this morning to this table. Not to a little piece of bread and a little sip of wine, but to a, a reality that's bigger than all the world body and blood of God the Son who died to make dirty sinners clean and empty sinners full and orphan sinners the sons and daughters of God.